Good morning. Uh, it is uh, glad to be back. Um, as you guys know, if you were here last week, uh, Lisa and I were away on vacation for the week, and, uh, and I survived. Uh, I know some of you guys are worried about me. Uh, I, I managed the beach and, and everything well, so glad, uh, glad to be here. My name is Matthew. I serve as the pastor of Christ City Church, and uh, really, really delighted that you're here. We are um, in, in the midst of really walking through who we are as a church. This is our third week uh, uh, together as Christ City Church, and um, what we've been doing is just really exploring the name that God has laid over us of Christ City Church. We've been walking through our name and the things that it reminds us of and the future and the being that it's actually calling us towards. Um, last week, we looked at our uh, call to Christ, uh, the Christ part of our name, and the r- things that we discussed was that what it means for Christ to be central in who we are as a, as a person and as people. We focused on the centrality of Christ in our lives individually and the centrality of Christ in our lives collectively and the centrality of Christ in our world, actually, in life and in every sphere of life. That's our aim and our focus. Next week, we're going to look at what it means for us to be called to be the church, to be the community of people that are marked by Christ because of Christ's work in our lives. How are we now to be this new citizenry, this new family, a collection of prophets and priests and kings and queens? What does it mean for us to be the church? This week, uh, we explore our call to this city, uh, to Washington, D.C., And so before we uh, jump into an exploration of that, I'd like for us to read a few passages of Scripture. And so I want to invite you to stand uh, to reverence the reading of God's Word. We uh, stand each week, by the way, at the the reading because the clearest revelation that God gives us of who He is is through the person of Jesus. But the second clearest is through His Word. And so we open it and and, and we listen and we um, receive what God has uh, says to us. Uh, This morning I want to read from Acts 17 and Hebrews 11. It's from Acts 17, beginning in verses 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times and history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we we live and move and have our being, as some of our own prophets have said. We are his offspring. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 9. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Jump down to 14. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking about the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that as we explore 
what it means for us to, to be your, your children and what it means for us to be your children in this place, Spirit, I pray that you would stir in us something. That you would stir in us a desire to see your name made great in this city and in our lives. And God, that you would guide us towards places of, of conviction and places of encouragement so that we may be found faithful in this place and in this time. In Christ's name, amen. amen. You can have a seat. One of the things that, um, as we were um, preparing to um, particularize as a church, as Christ City Church, after a season as the Eastside Parishes, we really began to think through, what does it mean for us to be in this place? What does it mean for, for us to say that, that we're called to this city? And one of the things that we wrote out in our uh, first draft of our mission statement was this, set, was this. What we said was, place matters. Place matters. Because Jesus took on flesh and blood, lived in a neighborhood, and identified with a people, we also root ourselves in neighborhoods and identify with people. Our place is Washington, D.C. And while many come to this city to consume it and to use it, we want to be among those who love it. We began that statement by saying place matters, which is actually quite a theological statement to say. To say that, that a geography has value. And place matters because place mattered to God. And what I want to do is I just want to spend a few minutes sort of deepening into that sense of what it means that a place actually matters. You see, the thing is, place mattered in the beginning of our story. In the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning of God's creative efforts, he took time to identify a geography of his creativity and his creating. In Genesis 2, we see verse 10, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, a geography, a place. He's named a place here, from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there's gold, by the way. He names a place and lets you know what you can get in that place. Some of you are like, where is that? I want to go there. I need some gold. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And he goes on naming places and spaces. Verse 15, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. In the beginning, in the writing of Genesis Moses is described as the author of Genesis, and what he's doing is he's describing our origin story. And in our origin story, he goes through great pains to identify the geography of our beginning. This isn't simply an exercise in detail keeping, but rather he's beginning a theological understanding that place matters. And that frankly, matter matters. At the conclusion of all of this, and at the end of the creation story, God repeatedly says, it's good, it's good, it's good. When he creates the world, when he names the places, he says, it's good, it's good. And in this, we get our first glimpse into the thrust of God's instruction that created things, created places, and created spaces matter to him and are to reflect his goodness. The place doesn't just matter because it says so in Genesis. God also says it at the end of the book in Revelation, Revelation chapter 21. By the way, we're going to do an entire sermon series in Revelation following this. So, yeah, you guys will be excited about that. <laughs> Can't wait to get to some of that. In the book of Revelation, God again displays his penchant for identifying geographies. In chapter 21, it says this, The angel who talked with me had a... He had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city 
its gates and its walls. Verse 16, the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide as it was high. And then the angel measured the walls using human measurements and it was 144 cubits. The walls, they were, they were made of a material. They were made of jasper. And the city was pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper. And the second was sapphire. And the third gate, agate. And the fourth, emerald. And then he goes on. And the thing about this passage uh, and the book for that matter, though they are apocalyptic and though they are prophetic and filled with imagery, it is also tied to a larger theology that says the geography and the built space matters. That beauty matters. And that place matters. And it matters enough to give thought to the way that it looks and that it behaves. And what that communicates to those that live in that geography by the way, this is why we participate in uh, uh, landscaping and clearing weeds and making this place, this school, look good because place matters and it can communicate something of value to the people that occupy that space. And so that's why we make this good so that the kids that come here tomorrow, they can know you matter because somebody showed up here ahead of them and said, we want this place to look good because we're cheering you on, youngsters. Place matters. And it matters enough to give thought to the way that it looks and behaves. And in the passages just prior to the one that we read in John and Revelation, he describes the new city, a new urban home for humanity. And he describes it in ways that are more common to urban planners and architects than pastors and preachers. God is communicating the notion that place matters not just in the beginning of the book, in Genesis, and not just at the end in Revelation, uh, but also with Jesus at the climax of the story. With Jesus and in Jesus, God continues to put forward this theological importance of place. As we said last week, Jesus becomes our primary lens for understanding God and his work in the world and for understanding the scriptures. This is why Jesus' incarnation becomes our clearest display of God's care for place. In John's gospel, we have a poetic articulation of Jesus' incarnation. In John chapter 1, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, coming into a place. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but they didn't receive him. It's all who did receive him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jump down, verse 14. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, the second person in the Trinity, God himself became flesh and then went a step further and became flesh and made his dwelling. He set his life. He lived in our neighborhood, as Pastor Eugene Peterson would put it. He lived among us in a place, in a geography, in a land, in a city. In the turn for those of us that follow Jesus, we have to ask, how are we then to behave as his disciples in the pattern of, of the rabbi that we follow? Because the truth is, is that whether it's John's description of Jesus moving into our neighborhood and dwelling among us, or Matthew's and Luke's description of Jesus' genealogy, and which are in themselves make the same point that God lived in a place with a people, these aren't simply random details. Rather, this is an act of theological subversion to the belief that the physical doesn't matter. 
What the gospel writers are showing in brilliance is that place matters. And also, and so, disconnection from a place isn't appropriate for a daughter or a son of God. Let me say that again. So then disconnection from a place is not appropriate for a daughter or a son of God. So what's the purpose of all this, though? Why does this matter, and, uh, and what's the aim of all this fuss? In each and every case, Genesis, Revelation, Jesus, the point of highlighting the importance of geography is to point to the beauty and the glory of God. In each turn, God is saying to us that there is an environment to God's reconciling work with humanity, that humanity's healing and its humanity's deliverance actually has an address. And that address is your address. The reason, uh, because God in Genesis states that the created world is good and is a place of shalom, he's signaling that your world is the place of shalom, that your place can be that place. The reason for Christ's incarnation is to be the way maker for the restoration of all that was lost in a place that was once good but has now become something damaged. Jesus' identity with a people and a place as a servant with an oppressed people, with the dispossessed, the reason for all of that, the reason for the manger, the reason for parents, the reason for Bethlehem, Nazareth, Jewish background, Roman occupation, all of that was so that a way might be established between humanity and God. But it took place in a place. And the reason for that, John 1 Out of his, Christ's fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. That was the aim of the incarnation. Not in a disembodied way, not in a virtual or ethereal way, but in a real, tangible place in geography. In Revelation, the aim of the description of that place, that final place, is so that we can be reminded that there is a day ahead when we will see God clearest on that day, and that that has a geography All things made new, all things healed, all things restored. And in that place, in that address, if you will, Revelation 22, there's going to be no more night. There will not be need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, eclipse or not, for the Lord will be our light. So what's that got to do with you or me and where we live, with our geography or this city for that matter? If place matters... What do you make of your place? How does it matter and what is it for? Stated differently, this understanding of a theology of place, it begins uh, uh, to respond and answer the questions, why do you live where you live? And a couple of broad statements about that that might approach an answer for you. The thing is, first, I would say, is that God has a purpose for where you live. God has a purpose for where you call home. Because of Genesis 2 and Revelation 24, we actually know what that purpose is, that it's actually to point towards his story in the world, that you live where you live so that you might participate in God's work of salvation in the world. This was Paul's point in the passage that we read in Acts 17. From one man, he created all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. The reason why any of us live where we live is so that we might find God and point others towards him. What that means is that your house, that your apartment, your condo, your front porch, your backyard, 
has mission and has history implication. What that means is that your neighbors, ones you like, ones you don't like, the new ones and the old ones, they have purpose in your life and in God's work in the world. That your ANC has kingdom purpose. Your address has a purpose so that you might know God and point others towards him. The troubling question is, what are you doing with it? Are you neglecting God for that? Are you thanking him for it? Are you engaging it? Are you stewarding it? Because the truth of it is, is that God has a purpose for where you live. Second point that I would want to make is that Jesus has something to say about where you live. Not only does God have a purpose for where you live, but Christ has something to say about it. One of the things that we as a community of Christ followers always get to ask one another is this. How is your faith shaping those decisions that you're making? We actually get to ask this of one another. How are your decisions informed by your faith? Any decision. How you spend your time, how you spend your money, who you're dating, who you marry, why you, why you are choosing to have children or why you're not, your views of politics or policy, vocational and career decisions. As a community of faith, we always get to ask one another, how is your faith informing that decision? And as it relates to where we live, Jesus as well gets to ask that of us. How is your faith informing where you're living, but not just that, how you're living there? How you're living in a given geography. Are you uh, living where you live as an expression of Christ's work and mission in your life? Or are you living in a place because it fit a budget and a preference? And while those aren't bad in and of themselves, they actually have to come under the sway and lordship of Christ. So are you living where you live as a matter of kingdom mission? Are you living in that address in a manner in keeping with the shalom setting and with the kingdom of God. Because of Christ's incarnation, because of Jesus' decisions, well, they ought to affect our own decision-making as it relates to our place. Jesus gets to ask all of us, how is my story intersecting your story of where you live and how you live there? By the way, that question is not just limited to a certain kind of people. It, it isn't a question for those of us who are going to live in a place for a certain amount of time. So if you're new to the city, you're interning someplace on the hill, guess what? This question gets to be for you. Are you living in your intern housing? I don't know if they have intern housing, but if they do and you're living there, are you living there in a way that's contributing to intersecting with the redemptive work of God in the world? If you're old in the city, seasoned maybe, I should say, you've only ever known Washington, D.C. You aren't grandfathered in and absent from that question. The question is for you as well, though the question takes an added nuance. Because of history and the role of choice and agency given the racial history and economics of Washington, nevertheless, the question remains. And your address matters to God has kingdom purposes, and Jesus still is beckoning you to leverage your history in a place to point people towards God's work of redemption. You don't have to live in a place for a certain number of years before this question gets to be your question. If you're here, for however long you're here, be here, and this is a word for you. Now, having dealt a little bit with the theological underpinnings of place and geography, let me I want to talk about cities in general and our city, D.C., in particular, for a minute. 
Here's the thing about cities. Throughout the Bible and Christian history, cities have played a major role in God's work in the world. Though Jesus was born in a rural area, the work of Christ is often consistently centered on cities. We see this in the Old Testament where entire books and plot lines of God's story weaves through cities. Ezra and Nehemiah are focused on Jerusalem, as are a great swath of the Psalms. Esther takes place in the city of Susa. Jonah and Daniel, uh, both urban-centric books. Jonah is focused on the city of Nineveh and Daniel and Babylon. In the New Testament as well, we witness the progression of the gospel uh, into, uh, that it becomes an urban movement. Jesus' commission in Acts 1 says, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Start there in an urban setting and then let it spread out from there to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And throughout the book of Acts, we see the spread of the gospel through the urban Roman world. Nearly every New Testament epistle is a letter to a collection of churches in an urban context. Philippi, Ephesus, Corinth, and most especially Rome. When we think about ancient cities, though, the cities into which Christianity began to, uh, to spread and to thrive, I think it's helpful for us to know a bit more about what kinds of cities those were. Rodney Stark is a historian and uh, uh, professor of history, uh, and he chronicles the spread of Christianity in the Roman urban world, and he describes cities in which the gospel is taking uh, hold. He describes the cities in a few different ways. He says that they were dense, they were dangerous, they were dirty, diseased, and diverse. I'll start with these. You can make up some others if you want. Dense. Ancient cities were incredibly densely populated. Ancient Antioch, which is the first city in which Christians were actually called Christians. Antioch uh, had a population where it was 78 people per acre. Now, I can throw out a number to you and you're like, man, I got no, no idea how many, how, how big is an acre? I don't even know like, what that is. Uh, just to compare it, uh, our parish here in northeast D.C., uh, we are about 16 people per acre. Antioch, 78, we're 16. Now, just to give it a little more context, the most densely populated neighborhood in Washington, D.C. Is, is over in Adams Morgan. And Adams Morgan runs about 53 people per acre. Antioch is 78. Now, just to put it in global context for you, Manila uh, is considered the most densely populated city in the world. They're at 168 people per acre. Ancient Rome was 300 people per acre. Cities in the ancient world were also dangerous. Fires were commonplace because of, uh, they were cooking over open fires. Artisans used open fires. And the chimney, ironically enough, had not been invented yet. So they were just, I'm like, dude, just put a thing over it. But uh, uh, they, they're like, ah, let it burn. Uh, and so the cities, they would, they would catch on fire a lot. Buildings were given to collapse due to earthquakes and insufficient building approaches. And crime and violence were rampant. They were dirty. Open sewers ran the streets. And apparently there was a practice in the ancient world of those that lived on the second and third stories throwing out their chamber pots in the morning and trying to hit the, the open sewers, and they would miss. And it was so prevalent that it makes its way into uh, ancient literature constantly. So you just read about it. Oh, we're so angry. They keep throwing their pots out. So it, so it was just, it was a dirty place. Even in the famed, uh, with the famed Roman aqueducts, though they brought water into the cities, the water was stored in pots and cisterns, and when left there, the water would spoil and would become malodorous and undrinkable, so the cities were dirty. They were diseased, they were just sick because of the danger and, and because of the, the hygiene. Urban dwellers were constantly battling sickness. One of the common practices of identifying people in the ancient world for legal documents was to note where their uh, scars were, because scars were so prevalent. 
And then diverse, there was an incredible ethnic diversity in the cities of the ancient world. Yet despite the ethnic diversity, there was also strong ethnocentrism and ethnic violence was commonplace. Rodney Stark would comment, he would say, the Greco-Roman cities were small, extremely crowded, filthy beyond imagining, filled with strangers and afflicted with frequent catastrophes, fires, plagues, conquests, and earthquakes. Yet it was into these very cities and this very place where Christianity took root, bore witness, thrived, and displayed amazing amounts of love. And the way that the church influenced the influential cities of its day was through the display of Christ's radical love and the proclamation of his radical message of grace. Stark would continue, the power of Christianity lay not in its promise of otherworldly compensations for suffering in this life as has so often been, uh, been proposed. The truly revolutionary aspect of Christianity lay in moral imperatives such as love one's neighbor as oneself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And when you did it for the least of my brethren, you did it to me. To say it again, the way that the church influenced the influential and powerful cities of the day was through radical love and the countercultural ways of grace that are found in Christ. Let me take one last turn. Our city. Washington, D.C. The truth is, is that our city is like other cities, cities both ancient and modern. And yet our city is different. <laughs> at, the, at the risk of making completely obvious statements, our city is the capital city of the United States of America. Some of you are like, what? <laughs> Just kidding. No one is like that. And that makes us the capital of the nation that stands in a unique place in world history, in world politics and world economics, and the world stage in general. D.C. is different in that way. It's different from Phoenix or Houston or San Francisco or Atlanta or any other city uh, that some of us may be from. When things happen nationally or internationally, we feel them here in our city, even if they take place farther away because our city is made up of those cities as well. And in that way, we're a bit different from Nairobi or Kabul or Caracas. When Lisa and I were preparing to move to D.C. to pastor here, we had the sense that in some way to pastor in D.C. was actually to pastor a nation. And because of the kind of city that D.C. is, we had a sense that pastoring in this city would also give us an audience globally. And that thought was often overwhelming for me. Because the thing is, I'm not one to pursue the national or the global. Many of you know I grew up in a close-quartered housing project in East Dallas. Truth of it is, I like my walls close, and I like my friends closer. But place matters. God has placed me and all of us in this beautiful and remarkable city to, to find God and to point others towards Christ, to see the kingdom of God in each life and every sphere of life. And so whether you're an economist at the World Bank, a policy director for a ranking senator, a doctor in the greater D.C. area, a high school government teacher, a student taking government, or maybe you're out of work looking for a job, D.C. is our city, the city to which we're called. And you're living here, it has purpose. 
Your living here has a, global and, has a global and cosmic mission that points others towards the goodness of God. Your living here with Christ, you point to the day when he in his time and his power will make all things new. Your living here has purpose. Let me get real practical for us. My time is up. The majority of us in this room live within a mile of minor elementary school. Nearly all of us in this room worship in this room. That was a joke, because <laughs> you're here. <laughs> We're a block from 8th Street Northeast. And I don't have to, time to go into all of the history to tell you about Swamp Poodle the Irish shanty town that was displaced when Union Station was built. I don't have time to tell you about segregated racial history of the Atlas Theater on 8th Street, nor do I have time to tell you who the once Trinidad neighborhood resident Rayful Edmund is, nor his influence over the city in the 1980s. I will, say, I will say this, by the way. If you haven't taken Kate Denson's 8th Street tour, you need to as an act of spiritual discipline. She'll fill you in on the beauty and tragedy of our neighborhood, which is a microcosm of the history of our city. So let me just cut to the chase on this. I've been thinking about our city and our neighborhood a lot this week. I'm thinking about me, our church, and the things to which we're called. And I, like many of you, I suspect, continue to reel from the events of Charlottesville, Virginia, struggling to make sense of it and feelings of anger and resentment and distrust. And D.C. is a city where the pain of other cities finds resonance with us. And so, too, does the history of other cities find residence with us. Charlottesville's history of racism and violence is D.C.'s history as well. The strain of racial injustice is written all over our city. And the neighborhood that we're in right now, and the school that we're in. Side note, by the way, Martilla Minor, she was an abolitionist who set up schools for African-American girls at the cost of her own life and her own reputation. And so the question for me and for us is how do we live well in this city in a way that points towards the kingdom of God? This is what I've been wrestling with this week. And I think what the Lord led me to was an image, was a picture. This picture was taken picture was taken of our elders last week following their installation. Eric Brown, Meredith Smith, Casey Lamar, Marissa Stubbs, Justin Fung, um, folks that aren't pictured, I'm not in that picture. Dude. <laughs> uh, and Paul Hartchie, Paul's in the band in the back. Well, maybe he is. Oh, he's in the back. You can sort of see him. Strong black men and women people of color, committed to seeing God's rule and reign in life and every sphere of life. And these are the people to whom I, as a southern white man, am submitted to on a daily basis. They're the ones who give care over my soul, who call out my own white privilege when they see it, my male privilege when it erupts. They're the ones pushing me and us to reconsider what it means as a church that says that we have a value of worship, community, and justice to say, what do we mean by that? They're the ones discipling me. They're the ones I'm following as together. We follow Christ. And so that's my statement denouncing white supremacy, that I'm following these leaders of color. And so are we as a church. 
There's other things to say too. But to say that what they're doing is they're pointing us all as a community of faith towards the day when all things are made new in this geography, in this city to which we're called. And we together are going to do that in this corner of the city, a corner that bears the marks of sin, and we're going to worship in a school named after a woman who gave her life doing the same thing. And it's in that place and with these men and women and with you together that I want us to point one another towards what it means to faithfully follow Jesus in this place that matters to God for the sake of his glory and for the good of Washington, D.C. and the world. Let me pray for us. Jesus, <laughs> Lord, I thank you for your patience with us. You've been reminding us of, um, of your mercies. You've been reminding us of your grace. You've been reminding us of your goodness for quite some time. And God, thank you for your long suffering with us. God, I pray that, you, uh, that we would experience continually your, your, your forgiveness and your delight over us. And God, I pray that we would experience continually your conviction of us as you woo us towards who you want us to be, individually and collectively. God, I pray that, you, that we would, as a church, that we would live into our name, that we would keep Christ central, that we would root ourselves in the city that has embraced us and that we embrace God, that you would stir in us our ongoing affections for Jesus and for D.C. That you would, that you would stir in us our, um, our passions for your work in this place. God, that we would, as we prayed and as we pray every week, that we would experience your sufficiency and see your kingdom come in this place as it is in heaven. And God, where it doesn't, where, where, where there's a gap between our lived experience and the kingdom, God, I pray that you would find us rushing to those places and displaying the kingdom. Not on our own strength, our own power, but of yours. God, thank you for who you brought here. Thank you for the leaders that you've put over us. I pray for them. I pray that they would continue to point us ever and always towards you, towards your rule and reign in every life and every sphere of life. And God, that you would find us courageously taking steps towards that, carried along by the power of the Spirit. In your name I pray. Amen.